I, I would love to think that if I'm fighting ISIS, that there's a judge who says, you know, this isn't just Richard versus the terrorist. There's really an objectively correct answer. Just like two plus two, there's an objectively correct answer. That's very attractive, but I just don't know if that's real. Well, I reached out to all of you and said, hey, what kind of shows would you like to see more of in 2024? And the overwhelming response, the winner of that poll was Conversations with Skeptics. And it worked out just perfectly because at that same time, Richard, my guest today, reached out to me and said, hey, I just watched one of your videos. Uh, and I think that the arguments that are being presented maybe don't have as much weight as you think they are. And here's some things that apologists can do better. Are you willing to have a conversation or do you want to have a conversation about it? And I said, hey, this is a perfect time. And so uh, Richard uh, and I, we go back a little bit. Uh, we, we've never had a face-to-face conversation like this before, uh, but Richard here, the Faithiest Atheist, is one of our guests for the Apologetics Immersive Experience with Maven. So when we train students and take them around the country to engage in apologetic conversations, making a defense for the, for the faith, we invite real atheists to come out to the groups and have a conversation with the students, challenging them and giving the students an opportunity to actually discuss ideas with someone who thinks differently. Rather than telling them they need to do it, we provide that space for them. And Richard has been speaking to our groups for quite some time now and is one of the favored uh, atheists uh, of the groups. I always love having the conversations with him. So that is going to be the conversation. It's going to be a fun one as we talk about these different arguments that Christians make and kind of where maybe they fall short, what apologists can do better. It's going to be a fun one. My name is Ryan Pauly, and this is the show Think Well, a, a show to help you think well about the faith and culture to be able to engage the culture well and hopefully have conversations like this with people who think differently and be able to really understand and hear each other out. My guest today is the Faithiest Atheist. Richard, thanks for joining me uh, for this conversation. Man, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. This is, uh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Again, with with my role as a director now of immersive experiences at Maven and Richard being one of our speakers, I'm on the phone with him a lot and we're texting a lot, uh, but not really had this chance to have this sort of conversation. So I'm really looking forward to this today. But maybe if we can start before we get to kind of your thoughts and your objections against uh, the video that you saw and kind of some thoughts that you have, uh, I'd love to kind of hear your story and have you share that with uh, my guests. Kind of have you grown up in a, a non-religious home, a Christian home? Kind of what's your background and kind of where are you at now? Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. And again, I'm a faithiest atheist. Uh, I'm barely on YouTube, but if you type that into YouTube, you'll see uh, my channel uh, and a couple of videos there. Uh, I'm mostly on Facebook for now and I'm, I'm looking at other platforms, but mostly you'll see me on faith, uh, Facebook. Um, I guess I was raised Southern Baptist. I was raised in a good church in the seventies and the eighties. Uh, my, my church uh, treated me like family and they still do. Uh, I, I was able to take uh, my family to Wednesday night supper uh, not too long ago and, and hang out with my old youth group. And we got to sit in the same area that we all had uh, Wednesday night suppers before. Uh, you know, some of them, some, we have kids. I've got two teenage girls. Some of them even have grandkids now because we're, we're in our forties and fifties. Um, and so to be able to sit and hang out with them and be treated like I never left, it's, it's been a really good church. Um, I did leave the faith uh, as a teenager and, uh, and in my young 20s. Um, it, it's a long story, but, but I also want to say Christianity was different, uh, at least in my uh, southern town in, in the 70s and 80s. And, and um, maybe my church wasn't as bad as you might see, like on some TV shows or something where the, the church is all hellfire preaching and all that. It, it wasn't like that, but... 
the dominant narratives, like even on Sunday mornings, if you get up on Sunday mornings and turn to CBS or ABC and, and you would see a pastor, they would say that, you know, science was a trick and, and that Satan was trying to trick you. And, and, uh, and there was a lot of prosperity gospel and, and healing and, and, you know, uh, dancing around. And it was a weird kind of Christianity, which I think led to new atheism. Um, and that's how I was raised. So me walking away probably wasn't too much of a surprise because um, it was a kind of Christianity that I think a lot of apologists today would, would cringe if they, uh, ha, you know, would tr- turn on the TV and see that uh, sort of stuff or, or to hear some Christians talking, you know, that science it w- was, uh, you know, not to be trusted and, and to believe the Bible because it said so. Um, so, yeah, I, I did walk away under that setting. Um, when I was first an atheist in my early atheist days, I, I was probably more angry and more thinking that uh, religion was just, you know, everyone, everyone else is just wrong and not me because I'm so smart. Um, but I, I was in the Marines and I got into counterterrorism and, and I now, I'm now uh, in counterterrorism. Um, and I really focus on radicalization. And what I've come to find out is that everyone's a zealot for something. Everyone is some type of zealot. And so for me now, uh, although I'm not religious, I could say that atheists can be just as zealous as any religious person. And, and so what I, what I like to preach and I'll, I'll use words like preach and ministry and things like that. Cause I, I still kind of act like a Southern Baptist. I, I don't think the Southern Baptist mentality ever left me. Uh, but, but what I preach is that everyone's a zealot for something. And so maybe, you know, you're a Christian and you're talking to an atheist, but there's something that that atheist is going to find important and worth defending and upholding. Uh, and he's going to think that you should, uh, and he's going to use the word should and that you ought to uh, uphold and defend it as well. Um, and he's going to get mad if you uh, violate some of his social norms. Uh, so er- that's a human thing. So I, I don't think that religious people are, you know, brainwashed or that it's a mind virus. I, I think it's a condition that humans have uh, as part of our uh, essential, uh, essential tool for survival. We're a social animal. And so we have this, what I'll call a vulnerability. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that I'm immune to it, but we're, we're very vulnerable to our surrounding uh, conditions. And, and so that's what I believe now is that we're yeah. just not doomed. We're not doomed to repeat whatever we're taught, but it does have a huge effect on us. And so that's, that's my push now more so than uh, atheism must be true or that religions can't be true. Uh, that that's more where I'm coming from now. Yeah. Appreciate that. Now you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, science and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, being of the devil and these sort of things and can't be trusted. When we talked earlier, you also talked about the idea of how faith was described when you were growing up. Can you kind of mention that a little bit and how maybe apologists or, or individuals in the church sees faith differently today? Yes. Um, in fact, so when you, when you and I decided we were going to talk, I came up with five talking points, five things that I think that apologists uh, can do better and, and Christians who like to get out there and talk and especially uh, Christians who've been reading uh, Greg Kokel's books on, on outreach and, uh, and worldviews. Um, there's five things that I think that you can do better when, when you're uh, interacting with the world. And, and the first thing is the definition of faith, because so often I hear that atheists are out to change the definition of faith. And that's not, that's not the way it was. There, uh, I've, from what I understand, it's been a long-running Christian debate as to whether faith is trusting what you have good evidence to believe and, or whether you just believe it despite not seeing it. Um, now, certainly when I grew up, faith was the thing that you just believe it, don't trust the science of man, believe the Bible because it says so. 
um, you know, kind of things that apologists would say, wait, that's circular reasoning, you know, cringe. Uh, that's, that was taught as, you know, as gospel. And, and the verse, uh, and you've mentioned this verse before about how Jesus says, blessed is they, blessed are they who uh, uh, don't see and still believe. And although you right, rightfully point out that right after that, Jesus shows a bunch of different uh, evidence, um, there's still Christians today who still say that that's what faith is. They, they right. say, okay, there's knowing, but you have to have uh, this leap of faith believing without seeing because the Bible says so. And when I point, cause I've, I've talked to a Christian since your last um, conversation where you mentioned those verse and I had them listen to you say that. And I said, you know, according to Ryan, Jesus contradicts that by showing the evidence. And, and they said, no, what he's doing is he's following up. What, what Jesus is doing is he's like, okay, those of you who already believe without my miracles come over here. And those of you who don't believe who still need to see it, you come over here. And now I'm addressing those of you who have to see Blessed are they who didn't have to see. Blessed are they. But okay, here we are. Now, here, I'll show you your miracles. So in their mind, that unfolded that way. It wasn't a, a contradiction of what you just said. It was a follow-up. It was, it hmm. was uh, this is the way to be, but since you're going to be like this, I'll go ahead and show you. Um, so they still hold to. There's Christians who still hold to. Faith is something that you have to uh, believe w- without evidence. Um, so I, I still think it's a Christian battle. So, so whenever apologists are talking about, uh, you know, a new definition of faith and atheists are mistakenly uh, portraying it in a different way because they're trying to straw man, I would, I would be honest. I would say, man, this has been a, a millennia-long Christian battle. I choose to believe it this way, and it's not just me liking it. There's scripture to back it up. There's uh, scholarship. There's theology to back it up. So, I, you know, I'm not just angry about it. I'm, I have reasons to believe that faith means this, and uh, you know, say it like that. But yeah. if if I hear Christians say that atheists are just trying to strawman it, and then you know, let's say I'm a kid and I hear, let's say I'm a kid and I grow up in a church with good apologists, and they all tell me that that's what atheists are doing, and then I go out and find out in, in middle school that that's not what happened. It's just been a Christian battle. Then the first thing I'm going to be, I'm going to say to myself is, what else have they been telling me that's not true? Why, yeah. why did they push this mean old atheist? Um, and I, you know, I'm not defending atheists because, you know, plenty of atheists just take the worst possible examples they can and say, this is all of Christianity are these worst examples. So I, I'm not defending atheists. I'm just saying I try to put myself as a kid again, you know, growing up in this environment. And if, if I hear something that I later find out is not true, that might cause me to doubt more stuff, too. So, that yeah, that was yeah. my first thing was the definition of faith. Yeah, I think that's I think that is important. And, and I think sometimes what's hard for me is. Obviously, this is when you're having one-to-one conversations with someone, and um, and whether it's a Christian is this example you just meant, I mentioned. I would be have a lot of questions for those Christians where it's like, oh, this is just a follow-up from Jesus, and he's saying, come over to this side and splitting up the group. It's like, where do you see that in the text? Um, it seems like we have our, our presuppositions of what it has to mean, and therefore we're trying to make sense of then this thing that seems to contradict it. Um, but also, I'm also thinking of like the atheists who... Um, even after uh, giving, look, that's not my definition of faith. I understand why you think that. And, you know, and sometimes, yeah, because Christians have been saying it for a long time. And I think it is, it, they kind of play off of each other in a sense. Um, he, here's how I understand faith. And it's just like, nope, that's not the way it is. This is it. And and continue right, right. to repeat it. It's like, yes. all right, but you're having a conversation with me. Like, what, what, what should Christians do with maybe that type of atheist that says, no, this is the definition and there's nothing that you're going to say to convince me? Do we start changing vocabulary or or what are your thoughts there? 
Right. I, I, and I have the same advice for everybody. And, and, you know, this gets, this actually will get me into my next point, which, which I won't get into now, but it, it's a good uh, way to open the door to the next one is that I'm not one of those that says every word can mean whatever, but I do preach that find out what the other person means and, and go with that during the discussion. And, and if the other person is just absolutely using yeah. it in a way that's not even in the dictionary, you know, if, if they're saying that Catholic is a form of Islam, you know, then <laughs> do something to, to say, you know, you're the only one that thinks that, or maybe not even, you know, do something to try to help them get away from that. But if someone has a definition of faith, that's been part of a Christian controversy for a long time, go with what they're saying. And, and I have the same thing for if an atheist says, you know, I, I just lack a belief, uh, you know, I'm not going to say, well, no, you've got to deny that God's exists. I'll just go with that uh, for, for that conversation. Um, and I also want to point out that because I'm the faithiest atheist, I do use faith the old way, the way that I was brought up, you know, and the way that um, Frank Turek and, and Norm Geiser used it in 2004. And I know 20 years later, Frank Turek doesn't use it that way. But back in his uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. If you think about that sentence, he is using faith in the old fashioned way. I, I don't I don't have the evidence for it. In, in fact, he even says, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, that he defines faith as Faith covers a gap in knowledge, and, and he says the less the less evidence I have for a position, the more faith I need uh, for that position. Um, now, again, that's twenty years ago, and he doesn't think that now. Now he says faith is trusting what you have good evidence to believe. But when I say I'm the faithiest atheist, I'm saying these are things that I can't show you. You know, I, you know, if you get into things that atheists have to accept, I just embrace those things. Th these are things that I just believe, even though I can't show them to you. So uh, I, I'm not mocking people who use faith the old way because I'm using it. That's my moniker. Yeah. So, yeah. So I had a question. I was going to ask you about the the uh, lacking a belief comment. And then you brought that up um, yeah. because it, to me, it, it's hard to have a conversation when it's like, well, no, I just simply lack a belief. Because even as a book that I'm going through right now on, on why there is no God by uh, what is it? Armin Navabi. Uh, it, it, it's used to then say, Christian, you bear all the burden of proof. Because I simply right. lack a belief, therefore I have no burden to bear anything. Because even though he wrote a book saying why there is no God, which seems like a positive claim, it often right. seems like a tactic to say why well, just lack lack a belief. Um, right. But and so it's like okay, maybe we have that conversation, and you could argue, well, then you're more agnostic, and that's often very fruitless. Um, yeah. So then, kind of what. How do Christians deal with that as well? If the atheist just says, "Why well, just lack beliefs?" Therefore, you have all the burden proof to me that God exists. Where do we go from right. there? I would. Um, I like to point out. Uh, there's another apologist named Braxton Hunter, and, and he calls what you just said. He calls it the Braxton Hunter's dilemma, which is when someone says, "I just lack a belief." That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying anything else. And then they turn to another group and they say, "Where's your sky daddy? Prove your sky daddy." It's, you know, it's all made up. It's all a myth just to bring that up and say, Hey, wait a minute. You just told me you lack a belief, but I just saw you over here saying that it's all a myth. And, and you just said, show me your sky daddy. So that's a, that's a dilemma. You're, you're telling me one thing, but then you're making a claim on the other. So, you know, which one are you? And yeah. you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be too uh, cruel about it, but you can bring it up, especially if they're, especially if they're challenging you, you can say, okay, you've right. challenged me a few times and here's something that I've noticed. If you, if you're, you know, interested in being consistent, you yeah. know, why would you say it's all a myth and then say you lack a belief? You know, we should. So like for me, I'll say lack of belief as to why I'm an atheist. I'll say I lack a belief in that I can't go and show someone no God. Like I, I can't take you and say, here's where God should be. And he's not there. So if so facto, there's no God. So I'll, I'll go with lack of belief. 
but I do have reasons as to why I think Christianity is of human origin. Why, you know, I think all religions are just of human origin and not based on uh, some higher power trying to send us a message. I've got reasons for that. So if someone yeah. wants to argue with your reasons, I can. But if someone goes, prove no God, take me to where God should be and show me it's empty, then I'll say, you got me. I can't, I can't prove that. So then yeah. they'll say, aha, you're really an agnostic. And I'll say, okay, call me, call me whatever you want to call me. <laughs> but, uh, but usually by me saying that I think that Christianity is of human origin, the, the atheist will let me uh, attend, uh, you know, the meetings. They'll let yeah. me in the house. <laughs> so when you use the term atheist for yourself, uh, so you're using it in the lack of belief kind of sense of, I just, I haven't seen, I believe I've evidence that there's uh, religion is, is of human origins. And therefore I don't think that there's a God. Uh, would you say, I, I know that there's no God. Um, kind of where would you stand on the question? If someone said, Richard, is there a God? What's your answer? Uh, and, and again, I'm going to bring up Braxton Hunter. Uh, sorry, Braxton, but, uh, he, he always talks about like a number, uh, graph, you know, high 100% that there is no God and high 100% that there is. I actually have two graphs. And one graph is, is there some kind of something could be anything could be a God could be a pantheon, could be just a consciousness or, you know, something we can't even fathom some kind of something. Uh, and over here would be absolutely not. There's no kind of anything. And over here is yes, there's definitely something, you know, heck, I might be somewhere around the middle. And, and when and when times are going great, I might even tiptoe over on 51. And uh, another apologist, Kurt Jarrow, says, well, on those times, you're a deist then. You're actually more of a deist than you are an atheist. Uh, because there's just so many amazing things that I'm like, man, there's got to be something. And maybe that's my own weakness, but I can certainly appreciate when someone goes, man, there's just got to be something. So on that graph, I'm sort of in the middle. Could there be some kind of something? But I don't necessarily think it's an agency. Yeah. However, there's another graph above that, which is, are all religions uh, only of human origin? And I'm on like the high, you know, I might only have a percent or two chance of being convinced that uh, they're actually based on something external to us that's trying to uh, make its way down to all of us. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain, you know, 98% certain that they're just of human origin. So yeah, that type of approach, usually the atheists will say, okay, we'll let you, we'll, we'll let you in. But, uh, but yeah, in terms of some kind of something, man, sometimes things are so amazing. And, and maybe it was my Christian Southern Baptist upbringing. Sometimes I'm like, man, maybe there is, you know, so I, I can't, I, I'm not one of those guys that says it's all nothing. It's all an accident. And everyone has to stop believing in something. I, I'm not one of those guys. Yeah. So, so I'm curious then, because you, you started off talking about kind of your focus now is, is everyone kind of being a zealot and this idea that everyone is a zealot. Um, yeah. What then would you say then, kind of with your perspective, what are you a zealot for? Um, diplomacy now. And uh, I, I'm a really big zealot on saying, hey, everyone is going through this to some degree or another. Uh, in fact, when I talk to uh, your classes, when I, whenever I go to the Maven classes, I say, um, and I'm telling them, you know, interestingly, when I'm talking to them, I'm not trying to convince them to be an atheist. I'm trying to convince them to be better at, uh, I try to approach it like Greg Gokul. Like I, I want to make you better at your outreaches. And I, I say, find out what they're a zealot for because they're a zealot for something. And, and you won't, you'll be surprised how many people are, are a zealot for leave me alone and leave me out of this. And, and I would say maybe, you know, 70% of the people that you encounter, if you go out and just start street preaching, uh, you're going to find about 70% people who are like, Hey man, thanks. I'm out. I'm, I'm not in this. Um, and the majority of them are probably religious. They just don't want to hear your version of religion. They just don't want to get into it. Um, so that's most people are zealot for leave me alone. So I, I'll say find out what they're a zealot for 
and then find out how much of a zealot they are, because you can actually be a zealot for five or six things. You, you know, you can be a zealot for, hey, I'm going to share the I'm going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I'm also going to treat everybody with respect. And I'm also never going to get angry, uh, you know, and I'm also going to be on my best behavior. You can be a zealot for all of those things. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, I'm a zealot for me thinking that, uh, you know, we're all in this together rather than one religion being true. I think we're all in this together, which again is going to get into objective truth here in a second. Um, and being diplomatic and trying to uh, reduce the vitriol among uh different uh, religions and, and, and between atheists, uh, just the kind of the infighting. But I start off by saying the reason why we fight like that is because it is intuitive. Because when, when you're a zealot for something, then you want to uh, uphold it and defend it. And that means the other guy is sort of the enemy. So you want to, you know, you know, deal with that. And, and intuitively, sometimes that means getting angry. And I think that's why you see sometimes people typing and typing now, because <laughs> that's sort of our outlet now to, uh, to deal with it. Um, unless you're also uh, a, a zealot for some sort of discipline and, and sort of some sort of effectiveness, uh, I think intuitively anybody could could be like that. So, yeah, that th that's the kind of the things I'm, I'm zealous for, and, and I try to make diplomacy uh, my big one. Now, that being said, if anybody goes to my page, they'll see some posts that are you know either cruel or seemingly like in your face, but I try to do that in a humorous way. Like, like I just did a real. I just did a reel where I said I ended theism and my, my argument was if God's here, where is he? You know, and, I, and I'm looking around like, you know, is he over here? Uh, so I, I try to do that in such a way that people are like, okay, he's being a jerk. Right? So I, I try to use humor when I say things like that. But, uh, but yeah, that's my big zealotry thing is uh, diplomacy. And I was a Marine for 10 years. And, and, you know, for those people in the audience who know about Marines, they don't want diplomats. They want people who follow orders. So that was a tough 10 years for me to be, uh, diplomatic and also have to follow orders. Yeah. No, that's good. I have a million questions, but uh, I know that uh, you also have four of the things you want to talk about. So we'll kind of uh, let me pass it back to you and say, OK, so uh, I think this definition definition of faith is so important. And as we try to understand what faith is, but then also be able to have conversations, not um, yeah, not strong manning the other side and saying they're only doing this because they're trying to target or whatever. And uh, there is a history because I've had Christians just like you have uh, yeah. tell me exactly this of like, here's what faith is for. And, and uh, it's completely blind and that's the best kind. And, and, you know, and that's, Christians are saying it too. So it's not just the atheist trying to attack or, or straw man the faith. Um, yeah. So what else uh, kind of uh, you, did you have in mind of, of wanting to kind of chat about uh, as far as what we can do better? Okay, yeah, and the second one is objective truth, talking about objective versus subjective truth. And before I get into that, I want to point out, um, you know, I'm a family man. I've got my wife. Uh, she's a personal trainer, so she trains people here. So you might hear her, like, uh, telling someone to do push-ups or stand up against the wall. For <laughs> uh, I've got two teenage daughters, so they might come in here and say, who are you talking to? Take me somewhere. And, and then the, the dog might hear people yelling, and she might start yapping. So all kinds of family noises could uh, – be happening here in the next few minutes. So I just wanted to warn the audience uh, if you hear Sounds that. Sounds good. And I got babies back out here that might start crying. <laughs> right. Uh, actually, I actually like when that happens. I kind of enjoy uh, watching pro programs where that happens. Um, so yeah, objective truth versus subjective truth. And and to try to, I've tried to think of a quick way to do this, but try to imagine like you and me, if we were transported to another planet with other people and they had different religions, you know, just this other reality or something. And they're all saying, my religion is true, 
and this is the objective truth. And, and someone else is like, no, 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 my religion is true, and this is the objective truth. And everyone understands when they say that, they're not talking about, you know, hey, I'm not talking about my favorite ice cream or, you know, what's my favorite movie. I'm saying, case in point, one of my wife's clients <laughs> and the dog barking. Uh, see, that was prophecy. Prophecy it was. here. Hey, you should believe in God now. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so, so all the people are, are saying they're making different religious claims and they're all saying theirs is the objective truth. I wouldn't be surprised if some amidst all that fuss, if somebody goes, man, I wonder if any of this is the objective truth or if, if it's just part of our human nature to claim that we have the objective truth rather than one of these actually being the objective truth. You know, what if that's the objective truth is that we're just this species that's addicted to saying that our worldviews are the objective truth. And now you and I, you know, we're watching this, like aliens are letting us watch this. We understand what that person means. They're not saying there's no truth. They're just saying, what if, what if all these people who are saying these things, you know, are just saying that's the objective truth, but none of them are the actual objective truth. However, each one of the scholars or the apologists for each one of those religions are going to be like, oh, you postmodernist, you're saying there's no truth, but look, the sun's here and we're standing here on the ground. There is objective truth. Um, I think a lot of people, when they say there's no truth, case in point, I've been having these conversations, you know, uh, again, I, I left in the, uh, from the late 80s to the early 90s is when I started walking away. And I used to have these conversations as a Christian and then as an angry atheist and then more as a diplomat. Uh, I've had these conversations for years. Whenever I meet someone who says there's no truth, give me 30 seconds with them. And I'll say, what about the sun? You know, we feel the warmth of the sun. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Right. Or I'm like, hey, we're standing on the ground and we're not going to sink into the ground. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. You know, 30 seconds and we get past that. And, and I'm sure there are people who are like, you know, nope, there's no sun. There's no, we're not standing on the ground. I'm sure there's some of that. I, I've heard some people say that when they challenge people on this, that they'll, you know, double down and say that, I'm not even sure I'm talking to you. Maybe I'm not talking to you. So, so maybe there's some of that. But I would imagine that when people say there's no truth, they're actually talking about these non-demonstrable truth claims from different worldviews. And, you know, and atheists have them too. Atheists will say, well, okay, some atheists will say this all came from nothing. It's all chaos. There's no meaning. And again, not every atheist sees it this way. But if an atheist says that, if an atheist says, hey, it used to be nothing and now we're all here and it's all an accident, and, you know, you know, nihilism is the way or something like that. I'm, I'm just throwing things out. I'm not, I'm not trying to paint all atheists like this. But even that's a truth claim. And, and, you know, they might say that's the objective truth, but they can't demonstrate it. They can't take me to nothingness and then the Big Bang. You know, they, they can't show me that. So um, we're all doing it. So I think whenever someone says there's no truth, before you say, ah, oh, you're denying truth, you know, is it is that true that there's no truth? Um, I would say take a minute and and give them 30 seconds to, to uh, clarify, to, you know, ask questions, say, well, what about the sun? Or what about the fact that we're standing here? You know, what about the, you know, the English, English language exists, you know, things like that, that are, that are non-threatening and see if they'll agree with that. And then you might save an hour or two or, or maybe two years because, because you're like, Oh, they don't believe there's any truth postmodernists. And, and then you go off on a whole other subject and you never get around to, uh, to the gospel. So I, I would say whenever someone says that, it might be more frustration to all the people saying that their version is the truth than it is an actual claim that there is no truth. So that's, that's my second. Uh, so do you, do you think then 
the question that Frank asks where someone says there is no truth and you say, is that true? Right. Um, is that not a helpful question? Because I think for a lot of people, you ask that and go, well, is that true? And they go, wait, you're right. Yeah. There, you know, right. and that, is that not an easy way to try to help them realize that they actually really do believe there's truth. And really when they make that claim that they're just saying there's no religious truth or something or a moral truth. Um, but right. there is at least scientific truth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. If you say it in a certain way and like in a friendly way, then yeah, in yeah. that case, you're more, it's like what you said before in another interview that you're not, uh, you're not putting them on the spot. You're just asking questions and, and you're helping them change their mind just by, uh, in a non-threatening way. So yeah, in that case, it could be, it, you know, when I so, said that I was thinking about the jokes, you know, you usually when somebody says, if anyone ever tells you there's no truth, then you say, is that true? And everybody laughs. Uh, and, and, you know, usually it's kind of done in a mocking way. You know, when I when I mentioned it, I meant in a mocking way. But but you're right. It can be done in a friendly way. So what about the, there's a comment that just came in on YouTube. Um, uh -huh. it, it says uh, there's always hard solipsism, which there is no defeater for. But even then, there is still an objective reality. I just have no access to it. Right. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, Donald Hoffman is uh, is one of the I don't know if I want to say he's a leader of solipsism, but his research is that because of the mechanisms of, of the how we intake reality, we can't we can't know reality because our mechanisms aren't made for uh, accurately reflecting what's really out there. But but he says it is something. It's not like he's saying it's all an illusion or we're all in the matrix. He's just saying that our mechanisms. And I, I read his book. It's back here in my bookshelf. Um, but you know, so he's not denying reality exists. But he is saying there's no way to know it just because all we have is our brains and our brains weren't. Uh, designed to accurately reflect reality. It was designed for us to survive and, and thrive. And the mechanisms of eyesight and hearing and the limitations of that uh, make it so that we can't possibly know what we're... So in that case, you, you meet somebody like that, you know, my particular answer for that kind of thing, if someone is, is like uh, what Donald Hoffman says, or if he's like, maybe we're all in a matrix or something like that, one of my mantras that I live by is that if you're on train tracks and a train is coming, move. And if it's all an illusion, still move. If it's not really a train and it's something else, still move. Because if you don't move, you're not going to be here to keep talking about it. So I'm very pragmatic about this. I, I, I'm like, uh, okay, maybe it's all an illusion, but uh, like, uh, who's the guy who said, I think therefore I am. Uh, there's, we got so many people, you know, so many scientists, person who says, I think therefore I am. But even that guy said, uh, and if I'm, if this is an illusion, then something is still doing something. And, and I, that's where I fall on that too. Something is happening. Yeah. Something is aware of it. And if I'm on train tracks and the train is coming, I'm going to move. And, and if someone yeah. goes, well, it's all an illusion, then I'm like, okay, just get off the tracks. But, but yeah. he makes it. Isn't, isn't the claim to say I have no access to reality or we cannot access reality. Isn't that a claim about reality? I mean, isn't that to, to claim to know something about reality that you can't have access to it or that everything is an illusion? Yeah, it is. But sometimes I think that works. Um, and I, I've got a good example of that. Um, and I like to use, um, I like to use this example of like, let's say in my house, uh, the kids are, are fighting and they're, they're screaming at each other and I'm, I'm angry too. And I come in and I say, uh, be careful when you're emotional. Cause when you're emotional, you make bad decisions. You know, and I and I yell it at my kids because they're yelling in there. And so I, I, you know, I say that to them. And then one kid takes that to heart. And then throughout her life, she's like, oh, I'm emotional. I need to stop. I need to take a breath. I need to think about uh, I'm emotional. 
so, okay, maybe that's helpful. But then the other kid says, ah, but you were emotional when you said that. When you came in here and yelled, be careful when you're uh, making decisions that you're not emotional because you might make bad decisions. How can I trust you? Because you were emotional. So I, I think it works uh, sometimes, even though you could make a case, you know, you can make a philosophically profound point that, you know, maybe I can't trust you because uh, you're emotional. Uh, it's still it's still probably helpful information to say, be careful when you're making decisions, when you're highly emotional, because your emotion brings extra certainty. Maybe you're very excited. Maybe you're very angry. Uh, you know, whatever kind of emotions are there. Uh, and that brings a, a level of certainty that makes you not want to second guess and, and think about it. And then later you regret it. And, and so it's, it's probably good advice. And if, if I said it when I was angry, it's still probably good advice. And I think you could do that. You, you could be in a group of people, and you're trying to solve something and you're awful at it. And you're like, we are awful at solving this problem. And someone goes, oh, well, then you're, you're not going to help us either because you just admitted that we're awful. So, so, so yeah, it's true. If, if someone says you can't see reality, then that is itself a claim. But, but then again, he is saying that uh, Donald Hoffman especially is saying we're using our brains to review the world. And that's right. – that's mechanisms that we can see where there's problems. So that's why I'm saying this. So there, there's reasons yeah. for why you're saying it. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess I get both sides. And I, I think of your, your illustration, and I think it's because, um, my thought at least is that you're making a claim about reality that you shouldn't, you know, uh, when you're angry, uh, your emotions can affect you. Uh, and what we're saying is, is yes, we process things through our emotions and through our lenses and through our senses and everything. But then, but that doesn't always distort the truth to where even when you are angry, you still can make true facts about reality and you can give good advice. And, that, and the question is, why is that good advice? Is because it's it's actually true that this is what can happen. And so you can still make truth claims about reality, even though our senses can distort things, they don't always and so it does seem to be a different kind of claim, though, to say, because you see things through your senses, it's always distorted. You can never know what's true, but that itself is a claim to kind of be outside the senses to claim to know yeah. what's true. So it seems like yeah. a slightly different kind of claim. Right. I, I, I see what you mean. And, and, you know, in that situation, I would say trial and error. You know, and that's, that goes to my being on train tracks and the train is coming. Like, I've got enough experience now to know that if something's on the train track, and a train hits it, it's, it's not going to keep being there. So, yeah. uh, I, I would say that, you know, because I'm a non-believer and because I think we're just a product of biology, you know, we're a product of eons of, of hit and miss. Um, if I'm right, there's no agent watching us with a goal in mind. So like 5 million years ago, there was no agent that knew what was going to be reality for us in 5 million years. We just kind of had to keep trying and yeah. now we're here to see it. Um, and if that's the case, then it's kind of trial and error. And, and our lives are uh, sort of a, a combination of trial and error and luck. Uh, you know, that again, that's my atheist view. And, you know, I could be wrong, but, but I think, so we have these mechanisms for seeing the world and they can be reliable, you know, at least hopefully for 80 years, uh, you know, at least yeah. we get a, you know, a normal life, but I, I don't know that it's uh, reliably giving us every aspect of reality and, and maybe for the best. Yeah. 
No, that makes sense. And now I don't know what your five points are. Uh, and so if I'm, if I'm getting ahead uh, and addressing something that you're going to address in a little bit, didn't just stop me. Um, okay. but you just mentioned this idea of it, it all becomes trial and error. There is no agent with any sort of goal in mind. And so this kind of yeah. seems to kind of relate a little bit to the moral argument, which fits into objective and subjective yeah. of then the question would be, uh, and, and if, you know, uh, maybe just stop me if I'm getting ahead, but my question would be this is if it's all just trial and error, um, mm-hmm and there is no goal in mind, then can we say that one certain trial or one error like is actually good or bad? Like, yeah. you know, the, the normal moral argument, right, is that if there is no purpose or there is no end goal of what you're right. trying to get to, then a try one kind, one thing that happens versus another thing is no, no different, no of moral significance. It's only when there's an end goal, like my team is to, uh, the goal is to score the basket, then your trial and error versus throwing the ball like this or throwing the ball over there. Uh, there's right. a right and a wrong because it helps you get closer to that goal. But if there is no end goal, then how can right. we say through our trial and error that one thing is good and one thing is bad or one thing is better and one thing is worse? Right. Oh, oh and, and, you know, the moral argument is my favorite. And I, I'd save this to next to the last um, because uh, this is the one that I've been working with the longest. Because I, I remember the first time I heard the moral argument was when my youth, min- uh, youth minister gave me a copy of um, Scaling the Secular City. And okay. this had just come out in 1987. Um, and so I was having questions and my youth minister had heard there was a book that helped answer questions. He quickly regretted giving it to me because uh, apologetics weren't popular uh, back in the 80s. Uh, but he didn't know about apologetics. He just heard that a smart guy wrote a book. And so he bought it and gave it to me. <laughs> and that's the first time I heard of the moral argument as a Christian. And back then in 87, this was just like another tool in, in my in my uh, tool belt for Christianity. Um, but then, like, once I walked away from Christianity, the first um, scholar or, or first intellectual who brought up the moral argument was a, a Muslim uh, in 1993. And uh, he and his partner, uh, like another, they were college students, but they were, you know, studying for, you know, some imam. They were like, I don't know what the rank structure is, but they were two college students underneath an imam. And, and uh, I was dating their cousin. And, and of course, her cousin, their cousin was a, a Western, you know, she was raised in Washington, D.C. So, you know, she would say, okay, I'm Muslim, but, you know, do I go to the mosque every day? No. You know, she was very westernized Muslim, but her cousins weren't. They were co- they were college students and they were very fierce uh, uh, Muslims. And they're the ones that really pushed me on the moral argument and saying, like, there's got to be something. It's not just trial and error. And, you know, they really reached me. I was thinking, man, there must be something there. Uh, the guy that... Um, came in and kind of got involved. He, he was sort of my mentor at work. This was before I joined the Marines. Um, and he had been a Marine. He was trying to actually get me in shape so I could join the Marines. Uh, and he had, uh, he was a Christian and he said, yeah, the problem with the moral argument is that on one level, on one level you say, okay, the fact that there's all these different moral systems out there, you say, okay, well, that doesn't matter. That's just our epistemology. Our, our epistemology, of course, is going to lead us all over the place. That has nothing to do with the objective truth. So he would say that's the first thing you would say about the moral argument to an objector. So it could just be our our epistemology. And he would say, okay, you know, let's write that down. So, you know, I remember one time we were at another church and and we were at the Sunday school and he wrote it on the whiteboard, you know, or back then it was just a chalkboard. I don't even know if we had a whiteboard at at that church. But, you know, (laughs) uh, it's all just our epistemology, which is what you would say if someone goes, well, the Muslims are saying this, Christians are saying this, Hindus are saying this. Okay, who cares? That's all our epistemology. That has nothing to do with the objective ontological, you know, truth. Um, so he said, and that's actually, you know, that's a good point. 
And he said, but then you say, what do I, how do I know what the moral argument is? And um, he said uh, something that uh, Sean McDowell's dad was saying back in the 90s, uh, Josh McDowell. He, he played like a, a lecture from Josh McDowell where Josh McDowell talked about how you wouldn't harm like an innocent you know, child. And, and he was like, you know, that's wrong. And, and he's like, that's how you know there's a moral argument because of that certainty that that's really wrong is, is different than a preference. You know, it's different than, a, you know, your favorite ice cream or whatever. That's something that you just that really hits you. And he said, OK, this is why it's so convincing is because that really does hit you. If you think about someone uh, harming a child, that really does hit you. And, and, you know, there's atheists who are like, OK, yeah, that is wrong. I, I need to find out why that's, you know, why I think moral realism is true without God. He's like, but the problem is that certainty could still fall underneath what you just wrote on the blackboard, which is it's just your epistemology. It, it could be that your epistemology might even include uh, a dimension where extra chemicals come in and say, don't look at this one. You know, if, if you want to talk about baseball games and or baseball teams and favorite movies and ice cream, you can talk about it. You can be intrigued. That's preferences and opinions. But don't look at this. This is you can't touch this. This is. This is untouchable. This is foundational. But that could just be your epistemology saying, you know, this could be just extra chemicals. Uh, and a case for that is uh, by a scientist named Robert Sapolsky, who's probably uh, unpopular with a lot of apologists right now because he just wrote a book saying there's no free will. But, uh, but Robert Sapolsky says uh, those same chemicals that go into disgust and, and uh, uh, you know, like you're disgusted by harming a kid or you're disgusted by the Holocaust – those same chemicals go towards like food or poison that's disgusting or, you know, things that like make you actually, you know, feel physically repulsed. He's like, those same chemicals go into those, those uh, type of uh, concepts. So if you, if you tell somebody you wouldn't harm a little baby, the very first time they ever hear that they might actually recoil and go, Oh my God, of course, of course not. And then you could say, well, what was that? You weren't, you didn't, you didn't even conduct any analysis on this, uh, what I just told you, it, you immediately recoiled. What's that? What that must be based on something. Uh, so that could be because it's based on something, or it could just be extra chemicals that just say, "This is so awful that I want you to, you know, I want you to jump back in the same way that you know you might jump out out of the way of a bus before you even know you're jumping back. You see something in the corner of your eye and you just jump back. That could be like a survival mechanism. But there could be some things that over time, extra chemicals have jumped in and said. We're going to make sure you hate this. And, and you know, that, that could be what morality is. Uh, and again, it still, it still would mean that the Holocaust was just wrong based on our chemicals. Right. However, if I don't want to live in that kind of world. I don't want to live in the kind of world where Holocausts are. So I think we just have to outmuscle people like that. You know, we have ISIS. ISIS today is like, well, obviously you normally wouldn't hit, hurt kids. But if you're, if you're trying to build a caliphate, then you need to uh, kill everybody, which includes, you know, babies we just have to outmuscle those guys you know which is why i was in the marines and why i'm in the counterterrorism world now sometimes you just have competing worldviews and uh if it is all if there's no judge if there's no referee saying actually isis is wrong and you guys are right if there's no judge then i say we just have reason to fight even harder to make this a kind of world where atrocities like that don't happen and i get that there's no philosophical metaphysical high ground there but we might just be in that might just be reality. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts come to mind. Cause uh, again, there's comments coming in phantom X 11. Thanks for joining. Um, but 
again, I think that's a common illustration of it's mentioned. If, if you have no end goal, uh, then you just determine your outcome and, and whatever helps or hinders your outcome. And so, as you just mentioned the Holocaust, you know, if Hitler has the, the end goal of eliminating the Jews, uh, and right. the Holocaust is, is successful in doing that, or it was successful at that time, then would right. we then have to say then that the Holocaust was good because it was achieving the end goal that it was designed to achieve. Well, well, and if it had gone through, and if the Nazis had won, we would probably be raised in conditions where they would say that that was a good thing. Um, well, for and, sure, you know, but that's, we that's horrifying. We, for sure. So there's a way in which, as you just mentioned, your epistemology is 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 if you're you're trained to think a certain way, then we may think that way, but it doesn't change yeah. that ontological reality as you as you talked about there as well. Um, right. So, but I, but I wonder if it, I wonder if it really is an ontological reality, or if it's really really tempting. And very alluring to hope that it's an ontological reality, because I, I, I would love to think that if I'm fighting ISIS, that there's a judge who says, you know, this isn't just Richard versus the terrorist. There's really an objectively correct answer, just like two plus two. There's an objectively correct answer. That's very attractive, but I just don't know if that's real. Yeah, in which case, I, I would I just agree that it is very attractive. Yeah. Now, now, when you mentioned it, it may just be an extra chemical reaction. Uh, I know you, you've heard a lot of this stuff, and, but I, I don't know your response to it. Um, mm-hmm. How do you deal then with the issue of um, that if it's purely chemicals, that we, we, we don't have a, a, an obligation to follow chemicals or an oughtness? So where now when right. we say you should not torture children, um, yeah. where do you get this obligation of what we should and should not do? It's just that's just what my chemicals say, but chemicals don't determine what, what should happen. Right. Um, so here's my answer to that, and, and it's not satisfying. It could be that should and ought are illusions. Um, however, we do it. Uh, and it's just like that uh, scientist I mentioned, Robert Sapolsky, who says there's no free will. He says, but I still believe in it and I still act like it is. So I act inconsistently with there's no free will because we have to, um, you know, if we want to survive. So I, it could be that should and ought are just those extra doses of I believe this. This is part of my worldview and I want you to accept it, um, that could be what should and, and ought is, and, and that's our language for it. Uh, but I also want to say there's something called the tragedy of the commons, um, and there was a scientist named Eleanor Ostrom who studied this, and she went around to different places around the world where multiple cultures had to exist using the same resources. So, like, you know, say eight or nine cultures um, – they would not live if they couldn't all fish on this lake. You know, if, if you, if they started fighting each other over this lake to fish, then none of the villages would live, or you had this field or this acres of land and you had to use for, for farmland or whatever. If you couldn't share those resources, you would not survive. And so she said that a lot of the cultures got together and came up with rules about how uh, each culture should interact with each other. So how to uh, judge and, and they were the judges. So they, you know, they said the, the judge or the standard becomes these rules that we've just agreed to. And I know it's just our epistemology, you know, whatever. I can see the apologists going now. Who cares that they wrote it down? But the cultures that did that, they came up with these eight or nine themes. And you can look that up, Eleanor Ostrom, uh, Tragedy of the Commons. You can see what the eight uh, common, common themes are. Uh, those themes made it so that those cultures came to believe it. And over the generations, those became their shoulds and oughts. And it was created. You know, they came up with it. And also they did the best. Those cultures out survived other cultures because they had these rules that they came up with about how to interact with each other and how to uh, judge when there's a conflict so that they don't collapse into uh, chaos. So this was a biological thing that developed, uh, you know, just humans using their reason 
and from here you could say, okay, well, God made it that way. Okay. But then there was other cultures that, well, that didn't happen. So, so these cultures, you came up with those themes. And, and so she said the cool findings here were that these same eight themes appeared all over the world in different cultures and different times, and they didn't know each other. And then not only that, if you ask the cultures where these rules came from, a lot of them would say, oh, well, it was revealed to us from, you know, from our, you know, from the trees or from our, you know, pantheon of, of uh, deities or the spirits or, you know, they all had their stories about how the eight rules came. Uh, but the fact is that they all believed in those eight rules and that's what led to their survival. And, and you could still say, okay, well, that's just God dealing them with them in a way that they could handle. So that doesn't really attack theism but it could also be a, a biological uh, example of how humans come up with moral rules for survival. Even if it's not based on some standard external to humanity, even if it's human origin, it did literally lead to their survival and them being able to outcompete uh, other tribes or, or, or groups that didn't do it. Yeah. I think that's interesting because it, it, it seems like it then turns into a very just pragmatic ethic, right? Of just kind of whatever, whatever works. Um, I think that's the reality we live in. I think we live in that reality. And, you know, if, if ISIS were to, uh, well, I dropped my notes. Uh, if ISIS were to come up with intellectuals and, and a propaganda machine and, and start rising up in numbers, I think we'd be in trouble. Cause I, I do think it's, I think we live in that world where it's just whoever's, whichever groups are better at, uh, spreading their views, uh, onto others is, is going to be the, the winner. And that could be awful right now. It's been great, but it could be awful. Yeah, I think, I mean, definitely the, the winner in the sense of if they're persuasive in spreading their views, that their views are going to be adopted. And so they win in that sense. But um, I would say that that doesn't make the, their views true, right? Because right, just because right. everyone it, believes that the earth is the center of the solar system doesn't mean that it is. Um, right. I, even, I think it would be an illusion. I think every group will say, hey, I'm not talking about I like this. I'm talking about I'm representing the truth. So and again, if you and I are watching this other world, if aliens are taking us to this other world, where these other religions are saying that we would tell each other just because they all believe that they represent the truth. That doesn't mean they believe the truth, but we can't tell them that we, we pull them into the room with us and they're like, dude, you're talking about pragmatic things. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. We're talking about the real truth. I just think it's a attractive concept, which might not be reality. Hmm. And, and if it's not, we, we have that much more reason to, in my view, we have that much more reason to fight for it because if it is just pragmatic, then we better make sure we're on our toes. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's fascinating because I, th this brings up for me kind of this idea of like an argument from desire, like C.S. Lewis kind of presented because, you know, oh, yeah. this isn't saying that, that because of this, that Christianity is true. But what I hear is just... Uh, is the, the picture that this sort of ethic paints is, is pretty dire and is pretty dark where you can yeah. have some wicked, horrible men rape and murder little girls. And the best you can say to that little girl is sorry, like you got unlucky. Um, and, and the guy, if he never gets caught there, there's no ultimate justice. And, and, yeah. and I've, I've talked to a lot of students where like we have this such a deep, deep desire for justice and things like this, that the yes. Christian worldview actually answers that with this beautiful picture of, of true redemption being possible and true justice happening where, where the guilty do get punished and, and the good do get rewarded. But if that, if, if God doesn't exist, if Christianity is not true, you don't get that. It's, it's a very bleak 
miserable picture, and that doesn't make Christianity true. But but when you when you look at the, the story that each worldview paints, yeah. there's a reason why one I think is much more attractive and more beautiful, and that we're drawn to in a sense. Right. Yeah, and I think that's you know one of the reasons why you know uh, I'm thinking of all the books that talked about how Christians uh, dominated the world in, in the past two thousand years. You know, you got person of interest from J. Warner Wallace, and you even have atheists like uh, Tom Holland with Dominion. Uh, and then another, uh, the book might be behind me from a guy named Joseph Henrik called uh, The Weirdest People in the World, uh, and, and weird being Western educated. I forget what I is. and uh, I forget what the acronym is for weird. But even he talks about, you know, and, and Tom Holland and, and Joseph Henrik are atheists. And they're like, but the Christian concepts really dominated the Western culture and, and really became uh, like, you know, like, like Tom Holland says, we swim in Christian waters. Uh, so there's a lot to be said about Christianity. Uh, uh, you know, and again, for, I can hear the atheists going, well, what about when Christians did this? I get that Th- there's been good and bad with, with Christians, but I'm just saying there, there's been some good with Christians. And, and when atheists are complaining against Christians, we're often using Christian language. So, you know, apologists can always say, Hey, that was us. Um, I get that, but, but there is some really good, aspects of Christianity, like, you know, and, and I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, so I know what you're talking about, where you yearn for justice and, and you want there to be some sort of ultimate right. I mean, that's, it's even in his Ransom Trilogy, that same concept is in his Ransom Trilogy. Um, my thing is that it really is, the reality might really be that bleak, and it could be that the best way for us to handle that was to have these illusions of this need for justice and uh, some higher degree of order that isn't a real thing and we yearn for it and we come up with narratives to meet it. And the group that does that the best is the one that can say, Hey, we dominate the West. And so for 2000 years, that's been Christianity. And, you know, 2000 years from now, will it still be Christianity? I I tend to doubt it. Um, Again, that won't make Christianity not true, but I'm just saying, what if we're biologically inclined to deal with this terrible idea this terrible concept? If, If what I'm saying is true and that's reality, then that that is awful. But then again, I can say I can I can see how maybe our species dealt with that by coming up with these ideas and they're enforced by biological chemicals that led us to believe in things like Christianity. Yeah. So, you know, this just gets into such deeper questions about epistemology of how we know what we know. And and yeah. and I think the the, the the thing that comes up in my mind is this idea of like, so then how far do you personally go? in trusting your senses. It's just, it's just a pragmatic, I'll trust them as long as it kind of works for me. But like, it seems like we're, we're denying our deep senses and our deep desires of what we know core of what is, of what is true and what we are able to see and perceive about the world, because there's a, what if it's, if it's not like that, what if it is just chemicals? And it's like, it seems like for me, that's a lot to give up is this deep understanding, this deep knowledge. And if I'm going to give that up and say, I can't trust my senses when it, when it, when I look at a, a, a father, punching his little girl in the face and this deep understanding I have of that is wrong. If I can say, well, that deep understanding is just an illusion. Then how do I trust my other senses as I look around the world and I look at your fighting terrorism and we go, that's something that's wrong. What if that's just, you know, that's an illusion. It's not actually wrong. And what you're doing is a bad thing because you're now forcing your views on them when in reality, it's just an illusion. How far do we take this of, of denying this deep, 
reality and this deep sense that we have when we when we see reality. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm making sense of my question. Sure. And, and, you know, I've, I've struggled with this for, for 30 years as I've uh, looked into it. And, you know, uh, it is. If it's all an illusion, then that's just horrifying. However, uh, I also see the world like this. I, I see the world like I, I, did, I don't raise my daughters to be, you know, engineers. And but when, like when it's lunchtime, if, if they're here at home, they're not at school, I'll, I'll make them lunch. But I don't make them lunch so that one day they'll grow up to be engineers. I just make them lunch because it's lunchtime. And now is that an illusion that I have to, you know, is the love between a parent and a child just an illusion? Maybe, but I'm still going to do it. And if I don't do it, then they're not going to eat. And that bothers me. But is the bothering me an illusion? Maybe, you know, you know, the, the scientists who say that morality is an illusion, they'll say that the love between a, a parent and a child is an illusion. It's just extra chemicals. However, if you don't act on that, then your kids aren't going to make it or, or they're going to be damaged and they're not going to have as good of a chance to survive. Um, so the people who actually take the steps and I, I, I talk about this with a lot of the students at, at the Maven things because they they say what you say. Uh, and I'm telling them about how important it is to work out and to take care of each other. And they're like, okay, but if there's no point, if there's no real point, then why should I do it? And I say, okay, if you don't do it, your life's going to turn out a lot differently. And if you say, so what, I'm just going to, cause there's no point. I'm just going to sit here and not do it. Okay. But your life's going to be miserable. So I always say, take those steps, you know, exercise, take care of your family, take an interest in your community. Uh, you know, be nice when you're talking about your worldview, think about what you think is, is real, uh, you know, think about uh, how you treat other people. Take all these steps every day and, and focus on being a better person, even if it is underneath all that, this chaotic awfulness that could happen if you don't take the steps. Uh, because for somebody like me, that gives me all the more reason to take the steps. Because rather than me thinking that I might go to hell if I don't, not that I'm saying that that's what you guys are thinking, but rather than me thinking that I might go to hell, I'm thinking I could descend into something like hell now, you know, in, in two or three weeks, I could be in a different kind of hell if I stop taking the steps that I take, um, you know, every single day. And it is more pragmatic and it's not based on some agency above me. However, if I don't do it, then I lose the game of life. And if I do do it, then I'm more likely to uh, push forward another generation that thinks a lot like me and they, they carry on that to the next generation and that idea stays alive you know, through more generations. It's more pragmatic, but it's still, it's still a realistic way to look at why we do things like that. Yeah. So you, you, you say, you know, you give the advice of just be a better person, but better in that sense is based on that pragmatic of ethic of better is this is what works. Right. And, and also real quick, I've got two more things to mention, but we might have to do Yeah, I know. We're, I was going to say we're at 56 minutes and you, you have two things. So, so we'll do that next time. This, this was good. The, 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 mor the moral argument and, and uh, objective truth and uh, the definition of faith, those were good, good topics for one hour. So maybe then if I can um, kind of push on that. So are there times where what were you, where you do something that doesn't necessarily work for you? Right. Cause this is, this is yeah. a, this is a big objection to this sort of like kind of a teleological ethic or an ethic based on an end goal, which pragmatism would fall under is right. the times where, what about the person who runs into the burning building or risks their life to save others, but that's not a, an action that generally works out well, or, or it couldn't make you know, the, 
there's a possibility of it not working out. And so there's times where this may not be good, but we still do it because we have this deep sense that it's right. Should we not have done those things? Or how does that work if better is, is judged in this purely kind of pragmatic way with the things that we do that don't necessarily or are not necessarily done because of this end goal? You know, and, and this might end up being like a whole other uh, hour for us another time uh, for another topic. Uh, because <laughs> be I actually, when I talk about this, and Maven, this is actually my opening bit about how we're not just driven by selfishness. We actually have three. We actually have three forces driving us. Uh, one is self-interest. The second one is cooperation, and the third one is zealotry. And those three are sometimes at odds, and sometimes they work out together. Sometimes two are against one. But we actually have three different chemical neurological compulsions. Uh, self-interest, cooperation, and, and zealotry. Uh, and and because of that, sometimes you'll run into a building to save somebody. Um, and someone can say, well, you just can't imagine not running into the building, you know, or, you know, you just, you can't imagine that someone's burning. So you just, you put yourself uh, in harm's way. Uh, so you could still call that self-interest. But but I, I say that there is uh, chemical compulsions to cooperate and there's chemical compulsions to be zealous and uh, uphold something, even at your own personal expense. Because when you have cultures that do all three of those things, then you're sort of like an ant colony. As an ant colony, you're capable as an ant, but you're also very capable as a colony uh, so that other, uh, you're just more effective at navigating through the environment. So I think there's three things going on there that leads to cooperating sometimes when it's not in your best interest and um, defending something so much that you risk your own individual uh, well-being. I just think those are two other natural things that can happen. Yeah. So maybe if I can end with this question, uh, because I, I often use this uh, illustration as, as, as talking about kind of this pragmatic ethic. Uh, I was speaking at a summer camp and uh, this high school student comes up to me and says, my parents and my youth pastor always told me don't get drunk and don't smoke weed because it'll hurt my grades and I'll lose my friends. Uh, but I smoke weed and I got drunk and I still got good grades and I still have my friends. So what's wrong with it? Um, right. How would you respond uh, if a student came and said something that. similar? Well, I get that from both of my daughters because both of my daughters can, you know, they can eat their, they're teenagers and, you know, and they're gorgeous. And I'm like, Hey, don't eat too many of those Takis or, or drink too much of that coffee. It'll, uh, you know, it'll stunt your growth. And they're like, where, yeah. where am I stunted? And I say, okay, you're in a different position right now. As a young person, you can get away with different nutritional decisions right now, but that's going to catch up to you. You know, my, my wife and I, I'm, I'm in my early fifties and my wife's in her late forties. Uh, but, you know, we took really good care of ourselves, so we don't uh, necessarily look like we're in our late 50s or, or early 40s. And I, I'm like, if you want to be like that, you know, right now you don't care because you're, you know, a teenager, but you be careful with your nutrition. There's pragmatic reasons as to why you should do it. And, and if you take risky behavior and you live, wonderful, but you might not live. And, and if you trust your uh, the back of your mind to pass your math test and you do, then you got lucky. You, you know, you, you really understand things faster than other people. However, you're training yourself in a way that's going to catch up to you eventually. And that's still pragmatic. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to uh, drink your way through your fifties. And I had in high school, I, I had a buddy who could do whatever he wanted and he just kept, you know, he just kept, uh, he graduated top of the class, went to a great college, got a great job. Uh, but yeah, like around 25, he was like, I had to stop. And he's my age now. And he's like, yeah, that all caught up to me when I was 25. Hmm. So, uh, you know, there's pragmatic reasons to not do that, not just because an agency is watching you, but because it, it can be unhealthy. It can be fun. You know, we have these chemicals that are drawing us towards sugar and alcohol and, and websites and, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff. But 
that can go too far. And, and if you're not careful, then it's going to, it's going to mess you up. So it's just that maybe the parents use the wrong pragmatic reasons of your grades will suffer rather than yep. kind of looking more into the future. Right. All right. Well, hey, this this has been so much fun and we definitely will have to have a part two because I think we, yeah. we, we made it to what, three points on your on your list. And so we yeah. have another two to, to cover. So, Richard, well, probably, th- probably there's like a whole other hour for morality because morality is a big one. Oh, yeah. I, and there's so many more questions. I'm sure I have. I, I know I have and, and things that you uh, we can talk about that that. Maybe we'll save for a future conversation. But let me just say thank you. Thank you for all the times that you come, spoken to our Maven groups. If anyone's watching or listening, this is what you can get in uh, coming to one of our Maven immersive experiences. And uh, and so just incredible opportunity to kind of bounce ideas off of uh, different people, kind of give different perspectives and really learn to understand and, and grow in those ideas. So thank you for all that you do for Maven, as well as thanks for coming on the show and, and having this conversation with me today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Again, so there's the conversation. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. It was fun. And let me just throw out as well. It's not the apologetics immersive experience, but if you want to come to Utah with me on the biblical immersive experience with, with Maven, understand a deeper understanding of theology and then put it into practice in conversations with Mormons in Salt Lake City, Utah, your high school or college student or you as a high school or college student have the ability to do that. This July, I think 15 to 20, uh, you can come out to Utah with me. So make sure you contact me in the description below or social media at ryanpoly3 or email ryan at think-well.org if you want more information on that. If you've enjoyed the show, uh, please share it, like it, send it off to someone else so they can enjoy it. Well, if you're listening on podcasts, give us a rating and a review. That just helps spread it as well. And uh, just I've enjoyed being back with you uh, in this conversation. Next week on Tuesday, I'm going to be picking up the series with part two, working through the book, Why There Is No God, talking about the scripture proof that God exists. And so that'll be available on Instagram and YouTube as well. A lot of other videos will pop up here to help you continue to think through these difficult issues and to better prepare yourself to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ here in our culture, engaging the world around us. So if you want to watch those, uh, those will be available for you as well. So with that, thanks for joining us today. Thank you uh, for being here, for listening, for watching. And I look forward to another conversation here in the future uh, with you. Until then, continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everyone, and see you next time. Won't hesitate to follow your love.